Welcome to the Battlefest podcast, the place to be to catch up on all debates and discussions from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021. The following debate is called Girl, Boy, Other. How do we talk to kids about gender? In the chair is Ella Whelan. My name is Ella Whelan. I am the co-convener of the Battle of Ideas Festival uh, with the Academy of Ideas, and I'm also an author and a journalist. But today, very delighted to be the chair for this debate, Girl, Boy, Other, How Do We Talk to Kids About Gender? And when I tell you that I was nervous about doing this debate, I mean I was nervous. Not because I don't think it's an important debate or because I don't think that it can be done, but because the nature of the discussion about gender, you know, more broadly, but also gender in relation to children um, or young people, because we're actually up, we're gonna go across the age groups of young people today. Um, is tricky. It's tricky because on both sides there are very strong feelings. Personal experience comes into this in a, in a very tricky way, which means it can often mean that talking about this is, you know, people find it hurtful, people find it difficult to deal with. But particularly when it comes to talking about gender in an education perspective within the classroom, within the realm of schools, I think it's very important that we try to compassionately uh, go beyond the fr the fright that I had of offending people or of, of opening up a can of worms in relation to talking about gender and kids and talk about it because I tell you there are lots of there are lots of changes that are happening in relation to um, sex education PHSE uh, uh, SRE whatever it's called these days um, in relation to how we talk to kids about sex and relationships and particularly about how we talk to kids about their own sense of self, their identity, how we answer questions that aren't what's four times four, but is about who am I? Why am I feeling these things? What do I do about this? How do I, what do I call myself? And more and more in the realm of the classroom and under the teacher's remit, the socialization of kids and, what, and how they gain a sense of themselves is taking place in the classroom for good or ill. So I'm glad that I got over my initial fright and decided to put it on. And I'm very glad that I have this fantastic panel to help us through this. A, a opening apology before we um, introduce our other four speakers from Rose Frimpong, who's had to pull out last minute because of a family emergency. Um, but I'm sure that you'll be hearing from her in successive battles. And if you want to find out more about her work, you can look at the website. But I'm delighted to be here with our four panelists for today. And I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they'll speak. They'll give some opening speeches and then we'll get stuck into it from the audience. So first to speak is Dr. Deborah Hayton, who's here on my left. Um, Deborah is a science teacher and a trade union officer originally from the north of England. And she's lived in the West Midlands for 25 years. She teaches physics at a secondary school in Coventry. And after transitioning in 2012, she has written extensively about what it means to be trans about how trans rights can be protected without compromising the rights of women or safeguarding of children. And uh, Deborah has written all over the place and appeared all over the place in The Spectator, in Unheard, The Times, Morning Star, The Economist. Um, and she has often been uh, involved in debates that have gotten particularly fiery. She's been a voice of calm and reason in, in many ways. So thank you, Deborah, for joining us at the Battle of Ideas Festival. Next to speak after Deborah is Katie John Went, who's here on my right. Katie is a consultant and a speaker on confident authenticity in communication and conversation. And she creates and facilitates dialogue and discussion around unconscious bias, diversity and inclusion and social cultural change, working with organizations like Pick My Brain and the Human Library. 
And she has a really long and broad experience of working with diversity and identity and difference. For example, LGBT, LGBT plus mental health, mood and neurodiversity and disability issues, but particularly around belonging and well-being. And she too has featured on TV and radio and podcasts, doing TEDx talks on the steps of city halls, addressing panels and audiences. And when I asked Katie to do this um, discussion, um, I was really pleased at the fact that we had a good long chin wag about the importance of debate. So I'm really pleased that she uh, welcomes the spirit of the festival. Uh, next to speak will be Claire McGuigan, who is here on my left-hand side. Dr. Claire McGuigan is a principal educational and child psychologist. Um, her interests are around supporting families and promoting social inclusion for children with SEND and utilizing positive psychology to improve the well-being of all children and Claire is also the um, co-founder and the host of a really exciting podcast called Not the Easy Way which is you should google it and find out about it or better yet come to Claire and talk about it after the session which is looking at in particular the ways in which we can talk to children about the difficult things that they might face from very practical realities of school life and school work right up to figuring out how to talk about things that have often become dirty words these days like resilience how to overcome barriers how to you know do things that are not the easy way not the lazy way uh, and finally we have Chrissy Daz who is here right next to me on my right uh, Chrissy has for more than 20 years worked as a school teacher in both the primary and secondary sectors he originally studied fine art and design technology at Nottingham Trent University and occasionally performs musical cabaret both in and out of drag and he's currently writing a book about transgender and gender variant identity. And Chrissy joined me on a panel um, which was about identity and this sense of uh, who we are and how we form our ideas, kind of in the frame of gender, but it broadened out at a previous Battle of Ideas festival and was so fantastically interesting on that that I had to get him back on this panel. So if we can start with you, Deborah, your opening thoughts. Uh, thank you, Ella, and good, good afternoon, everybody. As Ella said, my name's Debbie Hitton. I'm a secondary school science teacher I've been in the classroom 26 years, in which time I've seen most things come and go. Before that, I was a postdoctoral research fellow, so I'm scientifically trained and I come from a scientific background. I transitioned nine years ago. What did that mean? My hair got longer, uh, my wardrobe changed a bit, hormone therapy, gender surgery. I think in some ways I'm coming out the other side of it after nine years. I have three things to say today, and there's two questions and a wake-up call. First of the questions, today's title is, how do we talk to kids about gender? I wonder why we're not asking, how do we talk to kids about sex? Uh, secondly, what is gender identity? And I've not yet been persuaded that this thing actually exists, by the way. So I'll come back to that later as well. And then the wake up call. Uh, we're in an academic, we're in this intellectual debate here, but the context is scary. Children are being harmed. And I'll come, I'll start with that. And we're promoting this concept of gender identity that nobody understands uh, to children who, have, who lack the maturity to understand what they're being told. Children are being told they can choose their gender, whatever that means. Uh, maybe they can, but it depends upon how adults choose to define gender. Uh, but nobody can choose their sex, because uh, that's the truth. And that truth is being denied, and children are suffering as a result. Uh, lots of children. According to the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, almost 2% of high school students uh, now say they're transgender. And uh, from a UK perspective of my experience working with children, I'd, I have no reason to suspect we're any different in the UK than the US. But what does, what does this thing transgender mean? Again, we're not, we're not sure. 
Uh, it's usually explained as having a gender identity that does not match our sex assigned at birth. And then it's said that gender identity determines whether we are men or women. Uh, but what it is is unclear. It's like a magic essence inside our heads. It's unprovable, and it's beyond any diagnostic test. If I say I'm a woman, then who can contradict me? Uh, ten years ago, when I transitioned, I was, I was convinced I was some sort of woman. And I got very upset when uh, others didn't believe me. And my mental health at the time depended on how other people reacted to my assertions, and assertions I knew I couldn't prove. Uh, and I was an adult, and I was otherwise secure and established in life. But here we're talking about children who are not secure. They're making the way out in life. They're not yet established. These are vulnerable people by definition. Things have changed. During my childhood, girls were told that it was normal for girls to have short hair, wear dungarees and play with trucks. That's what I was, I was used to when I was growing up. Uh, parents, progressive parents at least, might have, might have told their sons that it was normal for boys to play with dolls and wear dresses, but that's harder. Uh, but now, parents of gender non-conforming children are being told that their children might be trans. And indeed, the di actual diagnostic criteria for gender dysphoria in, chi in children in, in the DSM includes, and I quote, in boys, a strong rejection of typically masculine toys, games, and activities, and a strong avoidance of rough and tumble play. And in girls, a strong rejection of typically feminine toys, games, and activities. This is all based on sex stereotypes. What we've done is we've taken gender non-conforming behavior and pathologized it. But that hardly scratches the surface. If you go online and look at the online cultures, they're grooming children into all kinds of self-declared gender identities. And it's nothing more than a belief system. And it's moved from beyond even a formal diagnosis into, inform into an informed consent. But informed consent from children who are too young to understand what they're consenting to. That's my concern. And the treatment protocol that comes along, the Dutch protocol, which was, uh, has spread across the world, is terrifying. Puberty blockers, followed by cross-sex hormones, and the either surgery or the promise of surgery. And this has been offered to children before they can possibly understand what it means to be an adult. To say that children are suffering is a gross understatement. Some children across the world, as a result of this debate, have been sterilized before they can possibly know what it means to be an adult, before they can possibly know what it means to have their own children, or that adult desire to have their own children. But debate has been uh, suppressed by intimidation from activists. I'm really pleased that we're able to have this debate here, Ella. Everything rests on, I'm coming back to the questions now, everything rests on gender identity. And as I said, I don't, I don't think it exists. Uh, psychological disorders certainly exist. People can believe that they're too fat or too thin. Some people believe they hear voices. Others flip between extremes of emotion. Some of us think that we should have been the opposite sex. But somehow we've been treating this last condition differently to the rest. Rather than explore how we can live with ourselves and our disorders, we've been told we have a gender identity. We can transition to bring our bodies into line. But it's all unprovable and unfalsifiable, and the burden of proof is on its adherents. And it matters. This is where it matters. It matters because what's been happening is that gender identity has been replacing biological sex. Now, by that, I mean our reproductive role, our 
that our bodies, whether they are, uh, have been evolved to produce sperm or egg, that's what sex is, and there's two of them. And that's, the, that's always been the distinction of, between men and women. But what this, what this debate or non-debate has done, it's made this concept of sex unspeakable. We're not supposed to be talking about this. Meanwhile, many gender non-conforming children as, uh, would have become gay men or le lesbian women if they'd been left alone. There's also an alarming overlap with autistic spectrum conditions. Are we now repeating some of the worst historic uh, abuses of medicine against minorities and against children? We need to be investigating this phenomena and not affirming it. Certainly not teaching gender identity as some, uh, some truth. It's mere conjecture, a supernatural belief even. Sex has been around for over a billion years. We have sex bodies like every other sexually dimorphic species on the planet. And that's the truth. And maybe as I started off with, we should be asking, how do we talk to kids about sex? Because it is sex that is real. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Deborah. <coughs> Katie, your thoughts. Thank you. Um, I've very little prepped on this because in many respects, I want to give as much opportunity to questions and responses later as well. So no big, huge speech from me. Um, other than to say that I partially agree with Debbie, um, which in trans circles is controversial. Um, you're only meant to have one opinion in trans circles, which is why I do believe coming to something like this is great, but I wish there was an even more diverse cross-section of thought at this um, conference already this weekend, because one of the things we've had and is, the, is the shutdown of discussion about these things, and that does concern me as an older person, particularly because the way I discovered who I was and how I want to express myself was by discussion, discussion with myself, discussion with therapists, discussion with friends, and discussion in educational places. But I am actually the product of, of a child that actually managed to go through school without SRE. So the, the idea that SRE would make me trans is clearly not the case. Um, I went to a public school that had zero sex education, amongst other things. But what I do remember at the outset of, of my life in many respects is that whilst we all have sex in that sense, and whilst gender might be a wibbly-wobbly thing that uh, Debbie and I both agree to some extent is magic, essence, where is it, you know, what is it, how do we define it? Um, and people will continue to debate it and, it, you know, will keep Judith Butler in, in writing opportunities, um, which I kind of love the whole idea about that. But the point, what I'm trying to say is, is that when we're young, kids are kids. And, and whilst they're born with a sex, initially they are simply kids are kids. And I grew up with friends who were kids, who were children, who were friends. And those were the labels you tended to attach to them far more than simply boy, girl. And if I climbed a tree with the girl next door, it was two kids climbing a tree. And it was only when we actually entered the education system that actually well, that was the first time I heard phrases like girls sit here, boys sit here. Oh, girls play netball, boys play basketball. Or what's in other words, the, the gender rules and roles began to come in actually in the education system to a degree. Um, and I'm nearly 55, so that gives you an idea of what generation I was growing up in. And that's what I was exposed to. So I was exposed to the rules and the roles of gender stereotyping once I hit the education system at a time when it was not at all teaching gender identity. So that shows you the kind of conflict I was going through in part as a kid. Um, I have to have, say that I have various types of skin in the game in the sense that I, when someone asks me how do you identify Katie, I say I actually identify as trans. I don't claim or identify as the word woman per se. If you want to use the term non-binary, I'm happy with that as well. I like person, like human. 
Um, but growing up, I had an endocrine disorder as well that meant I was nothing like my peer males. My puberty hit me four years after every other male because of an insensitivity to androgen. So there, I accept, therefore, that there is biological variation within sex. Um, so I'm, I'm not saying that there are third sexes or fourth sexes or fifth sexes, but I'm saying that how people um, exist within a sex and how people express that as gender is, is far more than simply binary, even without saying that sex isn't necessarily non-binary per se. What I find um, interesting, I say, is I think that um, having gone through transition myself and having also realised that, well, actually, that I feel sorted in that sense. It did solve my psychological dilemmas. My psychiatrist called me the most reluctant um, transsexual he'd ever met. Um, I went through conversion therapy by choice, didn't work. Um, I married a psychiatrist, didn't work. Um, 15 years, I tried really hard on that one. Um, I um, put myself through therapy multiple times, didn't change anything still. I actually went to them and said, can you stop me being trans? I went to sex workshops in America to try and see if I was autogynophilic. I tried everything. I tried lots of sex. I tried sex with men, tried sex with women. I tried anything to avoid being trans. Clearly, it didn't work. What I reflect on, and one of my areas of study is I used to be a theologian, and so I'm fascinated by anthropology and history and the way different cultures exist and challenge and consider things like LGBT. And the language that we have in the West is different to the language in different cultures and different epochs, etc. So language changes. People don't particularly. And sometimes we change in response to the language of the culture we're in, etc. What I find interesting is, and one of the people I like to study a lot, is when you hear, and even discussions we've had in other debates today already, the idea that it's, it's, it's a fad, it's responding to a current situation, it's a, um, I think we heard just recently in a panel an hour or so back that it's a, it's a West Coast Californian import to Britain, and yet has also been around five or six generations. Both can't be true. Um, particularly when you go back to someone like Magnus Hirschfeld, um, who in 1904 wrote a book called uh, The Third Sex, as a literal English translation. Um, yet that's language that many people are now saying, you can't use that language. But it was used 117 years ago. And it was actually used much in the way that young people are reclaiming the word queer as an embracing term to cover aspects of sex, gender, or sexuality that are outside the typical expression of them. And third sex was used back then to describe gay, intersex, and anyone uh, cross-dressing or expressing as another gender. And it was as prominent even then amongst women, people born female as well as people born male. So the idea that this is a modern thing that has been conjured up by the, by the Tavistock, by social media, by education, to me is, is a myth in that sense. So if you study history, you will see it's always been there to an extent. What we do have, though, is social media and awareness raising, <laughs> which does lead people to feel slightly more safer being out. Being out to me does not mean there is an outcome. And I think what we need to generate is the possibility of being able to discuss gender in schools, being able to discuss sex in schools, but not able to predict sex or define what outcome is necessary just because you are apparently subverting it in some way. I wish everybody in school subverted sex and gender, whatever you want to call them, because I wish everybody in school had the freedom to be an individual and not a product and not some kind of um, sex or gender stereotype rule or role. So the way I see gender is, is, is a stepping stone to actually human freedom of expression, to human bodily autonomy, to do that which your body you want to do. 
But to do that to a degree, I also respect that I think you have to be an adult. So therefore, anything that is before adult has to be a discussion, not a destination. And that's why I do come down alongside a little bit of watch and wait. And uh, as Debbie mentioned, some stats around it, people do not always transition. And therefore, there is a danger with early adoption of puberty blockers. But actually, the average age for adoption of puberty blockers is about 15. It's a myth that people at 11 get them like Smarties. It's really easy. We all know that actually you can also listen to the, the stats around how hard it is to access trans healthcare. And the fact that it can actually be, you know, three year, three and a half years before a first appointment and then another 18 months at least before you're given any intervention. So it's already a five year path. The dilemma with the five year path that exists now is the fact that it is a, a medico-surgical path very often now and lacks a lot of the therapeutic support on that journey because of the dilemma and the paucity of mental health support in child and adolescent care and in adults as well. So what I would be calling for is non-affirmative but safe explorative um, psychological support that should exist whilst people are pursuing their journeys. I believe therapy should be free for all at the point, like the NHS really. And basically therapy doesn't mean that you're being confirmed in your destination, but it's getting company on your journey of exploration. And I think that's really what I want to say, that we need to create a, a safe space, is, got, is a bit of an awkward word in its sense as well, but we need to create a safer space to discuss. And that's for everyone to be able to discuss. And within that, I think questioning gender, you know, considering and understanding sex, and sexuality etc they're all good and what we need to be creating is the environment in which we can explore can discuss can dissect can challenge um i think that's what i want to say on that for now. brilliant thank you very much Claire. Thank you. Yeah, I think I'm probably not going to need my five minutes, Ella, because um, during the lunch break, I realised I was eating my crisps in the corridor and uh, somebody standing next to me also eating his crisps in the corridor asked what I was talking about uh, this afternoon. And I said it was how do we talk to children about gender? So he said, how do we? And I realised I summarised it in four words. And I thought, wow, <laughs> I'm not going to need. I can tear up my notes. And the four words were developmentally appropriate and clear language and basically that that summarizes um my position about how we talk to uh, all children all you know from very young children to adolescents and and kind of um young people about how we talk about it developmentally appropriate clear language to expand on that a little bit because i won't just leave you with the four words although i was tempted to um there would be some there's some principles underpinning that and again, those principles would remain the same, whether it's young children, adolescents, or kind of older young people. And those principles are that biological sex is a material reality and exists. And we need to have some clear shared language for labeling and describing that. And uh, that needs to be, and it's not at the moment, and I think it's creating quite a lot, of, well, it's it's up for, it seems there's a discussion going on outside the schools which is coming into schools and into parenting that is confusing that that clarity around language linked to the um, 
the material reality, biological sex. So I think we need to have a clear principle that we agree what that shared language is so that we are not bringing that confusion around um, biological sex into these discussions with um, uh, the children from young children to old children and young people. So that would be one principle that would underpin it all the way through when you're talking to uh, children about gender. The other principle would be that we accept diversity, difference, and we embrace and celebrate gender nonconformity, just as really I think that's what, Katie, you were describing uh, describing there that you would like to see in schools. And that we, um, just as we do with other, you know, it's a, it's a value that um, should exist within all schools and that, that's a principle which whatever sort of difference we're talking about, we are open to accepting that difference, understanding that difference, and helping children to understand that that is the value that underpins um, all of our approaches within education and that we want parents to be framing their discussions with their children around because it reflects the kind of society that we would want to have, which is around tolerance of difference of opinions and difference in, in all sorts of ways. And gender nonconformity would be one of those differences that we should be accepting. So saying that, given those that my four words and then those underpinning principles, I think what that would look like in reality is with um, young children, we don't really need to be discussing gender at all. We need to be having some clear, going back to that principle, we need to have the clear language around sex so that they understand that they have either one sort of body or another sort of body. And we have words for people with that sort of body and a different sort of body. And we have words that describe the bits on their body, just so that they, you know, they know them and, and have some uh, ways of labeling and describing the material reality of the world that they exist in. But then beyond that, we um, convey to them through our uh, responses to them and to our responses to situations as they arrive we convey those underlying principles and values and we convey to them that yes you might be a boy which means somebody with a male body or a girl which means somebody with a female body but beyond that and in most situations particularly when you get you know in when you get into school that should be irrelevant and you shouldn't necessarily why should the girls need to sit on one sort of you know the, people with one sort of body sit on one side of the room, people with the other sort of body sit on the other side of the room. But when you're talking about with young children, what we would do, how we would convey that without needing to discuss gender, is we would um, we would convey those principles as and when things arose. So you, you wouldn't have conversations with children, you know, if a um, child challenged, uh, uh, say, um, one of the boys playing with what they thought were the girls' toys, you would respond to that saying, you know, they're not girls' toys, they're toys, it's fine for Tommy to play with those toys. You know, they're just toys. Anybody can play with those toys. And conversely, you would like saying things like, you know, they're not boys' clothes, they're just clothes. Anybody can wear those clothes. And we, what we're conveying to young children then is that, yes, you have one sort of body or the other, but your body does not dictate in any way your personality, your preferences, your interests in life, and you are entirely free without constraints from society based on the sort of body that you have, that you will be um, prevented um, from certain opportunities, prevented from certain interests. And really, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking to what De Debbie, you were saying, doesn't that sound a lot like the 1980s, Debbie? <laughs> or the 1970s, you think? That's, what, that's how we talked to, you know, at the time when, I mean, I was a, a child in the 1970s, but then in the 1980s, I, you know, it was the, the kind of, the, um, 
gender was very it was uh boy george david bowie you know that that was but we had clear language we knew that they were men but they were experimenting with gender so they weren't you know eyeliner was being expanded into being a, a man thing as well so really eyeliner. in some ways um what i'm describing here is 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 not a new idea it's a let's go back to that idea and then i would say applying my um my four words developmentally appropriate clear language with those underlying principles that biological sex exists and we accept gender nonconformity and diversity and all differences, when you start applying that to um, adolescents and older young people, then I would say that, yeah, then we do need to start, start talking about gender. And we need to start talking about it because it's been spoken about in wider society and it's a fascinating topic and they're interested in it and they're already talking about it. And we need to be talking to them about pretty much everything when it gets to that point. We need to be having open conversations on interesting issues where they will be uh, individually start exploring their own identity sexuality they might well be playing with gender in lots of different ways or exploring gender in lots of different ways so while they're doing that individually and well whilst there's a um, at the moment quite a contentious debate and wider society going on about that we need to be bringing those sorts of conversations into schools into the classrooms into societies and into society um, at large to and, and conveying the message to young people you know going back to the principle that diversity is tolerated and diversity of viewpoint is also tolerated and what that's another really important reason that we need to talk to them about that not only because are they already exploring that but often what's happening at the moment is that's been explored quite individually or in certain groups often on the internet or in um, maybe quite insular peer groups at time at times what we want is young people to be to keep their minds open and actually that's um, illustrated by another conversation that I had at lunchtime I had a very productive lunchtime where somebody else asked me what I was speaking about and shared that um, they had a 15 year old son who was exploring um, gender identity and we had a little conversation about you know tr tricky as a parent to um, navigate that but we, we both agreed really what I was going to share with you here that actually the best approach for young to talking to adolescents and young people about gender is to keep things as open as possible keep the discussion open keep their minds open keep that you know they might feel at that time that well they probably will feel as well if they're 15 that they're very clear what they think and they're probably going to think it forever and that's fine but you keep saying you, you, you think that you might think it forever but not everybody thinks that there might be other ways of looking at it gender is not a um a, a resolved issue you know as uh, i think um how did you describe it, Katie? Wibbly-wobbly. Wibbly-wobbly, yes. It's Highly wib scientific. That would, yes, that would be a lovely way to, to raise it with a 15-year-old. It's wibbly-wobbly. They probably wouldn't appreciate you describing their, their very serious conversation they're trying to have with you. It's wibbly-wobbly. But, but what, you want, what we would want to be doing with young people is, yes, talking about gender, but talking about it openly and exploratory and in a curious way and keeping their minds open and... Um, trying to ensure that they agree with those underlying principles that I mentioned in the beginning and would we'll go back to, which would be around tolerance and acceptance of difference. Thank you, Claire. Chrissy, <laughs> your open thoughts. Okay. All right, before I start, I'd just like to declare my pronouns. They are I, me, and my. Thank you. Um, <laughs> 
I want to actually make three fairly disparate points before moving on to tentatively address the question in the title of this discussion. Um, although I would like to suggest maybe a better question would be, um, should we talk to kids at all about anything? Um, okay, um, joke's over. Right, uh, so three points. Firstly, I would like to just sort of look fairly briefly at um, trans experience over the last uh, 40 to 50 years, which is around about the time that I have been a conscious being in the world. Um, then I would like to look at gender dysphoria itself um, and maybe make a suggestion as to how we could <coughs> to understand that, and that might be helpful. <clears throat> Thirdly, I would like to look at the um, changing relationship between society and the individual over that same sort of period. So a much broadened, much broader uh, point. Okay, so point one then, uh, trans experience. I think uh, 40 to 50 years ago, I think everyone would have to agree that it was a pretty hostile world to be trans, along with many other um, um, <coughs> minority uh, ways of being. Um, the um, tabloid was pretty unkind, tended to treat trans people as, uh, as, a, as a freak show. Uh, public opinion was probably characterised by a combination of incredulity, ridicule, indifference, uh, and so forth. Uh, so what ten, I think what happened as a consequence of that is that tr trans people themselves and people who supported um, trans people and uh, the idea of trans rights did not do the difficult thing, which would be to confront public opinion and to try to win people over to a different way of thinking. Uh, rather than do that, they went behind the public's back. So you had a lot of, um, of lobbying, essentially, of judges, professors in universities, um, members of the medical establishment, charity workers. So in other words, elite circles were involved in this, in, in this uh, question of trans rights. And, but what I think what emerged is it was, it was only probably about 10 years ago that this suddenly exploded into, into the public domain. People did not, were not aware of the changes that had happened. I actually, I've met quite a few trans people themselves that up until um, say that same sort of time, um, 10 years ago, were not aware of the Gender Recognition Act of 2004, 2005, um, which we might talk about a bit later, so I won't go into the details of that. Um, okay, so that's my, that's my first point, is that things would have been different if the campaign had taken a more sort of uh, an approach that was more to do with trying to engage the public rather than leaving the public feeling what's going on i don't understand what's happened here my second point uh, which is about gender dysphoria is that one of the problems that i think trans people have always had is the difficulty of explaining what is this thing about i feel as though i'm trapped in the wrong body because to most people that's not very convincing scientifically it doesn't make any sense um, so I would just, I think there, there are many, many ways, as Debbie said at the beginning, no one really understands it. There are many sort of possible uh, things that might be going on there. One thing I would like to point out, which I think may be critical um, to do with why it feels so deep rooted to, 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 to many people. And I think that it's, it's actually nothing to do with, with biology um, and it's nothing to do with the uh, psychology and the things that you might think about, such as Freud or, or, or things like that. But it is more to do with cognitive development in early childhood. 
So you have to remember that children come into the world knowing absolutely nothing and not really having any of the, um, um, the techniques, the sort of structures in, to make sense of the world. So they immediately have to start putting everything into a category, comparing everything with everything else and saying this is that sort of thing, that's that sort of thing, et cetera, et cetera. And the probably the most significant of these categories in which a child actually has to include themselves is gender. Um, and it's, it's at this point around, um, the, around the ages of four to eight that children become what psychologists call gender detectives. In other words, they're looking at every sort of thing and every type of behavior and saying and trying to work out, is that for girls or boys? You know, so for instance, a boy might see a girl eating an apple or something as re equally ridiculous as that and think, ah, does that mean eating apples is a girl's thing? Um, and and the, other, the other point is that around the same age, children have, have not yet become aware that sex is a fixed category. They don't yet understand that if you're a boy, you will develop into being a man and so forth. So that the, this, this creates a sense of, uh, of anxiety around those categories. Um, and I think that it isn't that surprising, perhaps, that some children at that age, almost by accident, might categorize themselves in the wrong box. It might then be, go become a completely latent thing. Um, but then it might re-emerge. So around adolescence, maybe even into adulthood, this sense of being trapped in the wrong body that could quite easily relate back to this sort of cognitive issue, as I suggested. Right, next point, um, society and the individual. Now, at, uh, about three, uh, five years ago, sorry, I, I um, speaking at the Battle of Ideas, I made a distinction between three, three different paradigms over again the last sort of 50 years in how gender has been understood. Firstly, there was um, the idea that gender was all about the sexual division of labor. That's how everybody understood gender from feminists to conservatives back in the, uh, the 70s and the 80s. That gradually shifted into an idea of gender being to do with interpersonal relationships and finally ended up with this sense of gender as being the inner mood that it doesn't really relate to other people or to society in any way whatsoever. I recently I came across a, quite an interesting idea about identity formation from this guy called uh, Hans God Muller, who's a, a, a philosopher, and he talks about three different ways in which identity is formed. The first two, uh, he's borrowed from uh, a, an American thinker called Lionel Trilling, uh, are sincerity and authenticity. So very, very briefly, you, you form your sense of identity uh, in sincerity in terms of the role that is given to you. And the question then is how well you fulfill that role. So going back in history, that is largely to do with um, uh, the sort of job you're going to be doing in society. And that goes across lots of social uh, categories. The second one, authenticity, started to come into its own in the first half of the 20th century, which is to do with the fact that those sort, that sort of caste system was breaking down quite significantly. And this, the idea was you could develop your individual identity for yourself. You could create your own values, your own meanings. Um, the third um, um, idea about identity formation is something called profilicity, which is more to, which very much to do with the uh, 
the social media age, which is how you curate, how you present yourself to the world. Now, uh, just a quick point about authenticity. Um, I think when they started to develop, this was about active engagement. It was about um, how you acted in the world rather than what it has become, which is this sort of um, sense that is deep inside you. The problem with this sort of deep inside internal mood idea of authentic identity is the more you go into that, the more you go into nothingness because we don't actually exist as social beings without social interaction. So we need the prophylicity to sort of uh, back up that sense. We need to constantly keep showing the world, this is who I am. And we also need some, for, some sort of form of sincerity. This is the box that I have been put into and I'm going to show that I, I fulfill that. Okay, quite a long um, divergence. Have I got any time left a at minute, all to minute. one minute? Okay, right, I'll just jump straight into one point, one little thing, which is a video of, um, I think, America's most famous trans kid, which is Jazz Jennings. You might have heard of her. And um, this was a video of her with her doctor, just at the point where, having been put onto puberty blockers, she was that now going to go on to cross um, sex hormones and, and think about um, uh, surgery. And it was at this point that her doctor explained to her that because she'd been on puberty blockers, um, her penis had not developed to a normal uh, size for her age. And therefore, there was going to be enormous difficulty in constructing a vagina from that um, penis. And she sh was absolutely shocked by this revelation. And you can't help thinking, how come such an important thing was not explained to her before she went on to puberty blockers? So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much, Chrissy. Um, I think that the uh, the discussion about biological sex from the panel kind of lacked nuance in sort of two ways. So firstly, like you talked a lot about how biological sex is real, when it's not really, it's as much of a social construct as, as other things, because um, studies have suggested that about one in 50 people have an intersex condition. And so when it's that common, it's kind of weird to be drawing uh, a binary distinction so easily. And just like the, the, the distinction between gen uh, sexes and the, the line drawn is as important as classifying some people as tall and some as short because you know it's something you have to talk about but it's not a foundational part of of everything and then also talking about biological sex as if it's sort of immutable is is very reductive because biological sex exists in your dna and your dna is just a code and when the code isn't read and used it's kind of meaningless and so people on hormones on replacement stuff for a long time their biological sex in a lot of ways doesn't really matter. And so, you know, putting, changing the focus from gender, which is made up in every way, to something that's made up in just how we draw lines, doesn't really change the made upness of it. And I think, I, I think just the way that sex is discussed as more scientific is, is a bit, uh, yeah, leaves out a lot of the conversation. Brilliant, so. brilliant, thank you. Um, Pamela, I'm gonna take four or five and then come back to you. 
yeah, so I have a question about would it be then are you sort of suggesting that it would be ideal for children to be brought up in a society which is completely neutral? So you don't have any sort of categories and you never define someone as being a male or female and you only define them as maybe having like an XX chromosome or an XY chromosome, for example, um, because there was a sort of general consensus on across the board that uh, uh, gender was social, socially constructed and was defined by socialis socialization of the child. Um, so in that respect, how far would you take the sort of neutralization of a society or of that socialization of that child so that it goes as far as to removing pronouns completely so would you just can refer to every child as they them from birth or would you still utilize the uh, he she pronouns because they had an x uh, xx chromosome or an xy chromosome great thank you yeah that's actually a really good question because there is a tension here between whether or not you go full you know if you're saying that i find myself saying a lot of the time you know, gender is the least interesting thing about you is like go out and play or like do your math homework or shut up about it kind of thing. Then, uh, then actually is the way to go forward in a serious way to be to say gender isn't important. Let's be completely gender neutral. It doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl. It doesn't matter if you play with pink or blue. None of these things, these rules or social norms that society have organized has organized itself around for quite some time matter anymore. Or do you say actually these things do matter? and you are a girl, you are a boy, but if you are different, then okay, that's a different category and let's deal with it, which is a different way of approaching it than going down the whole, let's not talk about gender thing. Thank you very much for a very interesting discussion. Um, I'd like to raise a small point that I think wasn't directly discussed. It's a, this is a point generally about any change that one would like to see in society, um, and I've, but I think it is very relevant here as well which is there is some kind of ideal where we want to be. Whatever that is for different people, we can discuss that. The truth of the matter is that, we, that the society will not change overnight. And I think it's important to also discuss how do we get there? Because I think uh, you know, if we decide from now on universally to stop teaching uh, or to start teaching uh, children about uh, sex and gender in a very different manner to which the wider society perceives it, we will actually end up with a lot of, I think, damaged kids. Uh, we have to, the, the chain, I, I'm not saying that we shouldn't want to be there. I'm saying that we should think exactly how to get there. And that, and the intermediate stage might be different from how we would ideally like to teach. Um, the thing I would also like to um, second is uh, the person in, uh, in front of me asked about pronouns and uh, it would be very nice to hear more um, hear more of your of your views about that because I think the way we use our language uh, shapes a lot how we um, well how we interact with the world and each other and mm -hmm. when it comes to education I think that matters a lot thank you thank you thank you very much um I was just wondering why you think it's so bad to like experiment with gender as a child even if you're wrong because it just helps you grow as a person as long as you don't take any medical uh, action with it. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, no, that oh, that's often quite uh, put forward as quite a kind of compromise, almost a compromise position, which is you can set, you know, there and lots of people who are on the side of this debate that would argue for greater experimentation in gender would say anything goes, but just no doctors involved or, you know, no, no, no medicine involved, no surgeons involved, wait. But then, of course, the other side is that then people who are who do go on to be very serious about changing their 
gender or um, becoming trans say, well, part of the tricky part of this discussion is that in many ways, the longer you wait, mm. the, as Chrissy pointed out, sometimes you'll have problems that are very complicated problems. That actually the, the nature of us being human beings with, I've just been in a discussion about abortion and egg freezing, you know, with ticking biological plot, clocks that change as we grow, and particularly the process of going through puberty, <clears throat> what happens if you wait or what happens if you move? And so then the compromise position would seems like not so much of a compromise anymore if you really want to have um, this change made to you. So let me throw this back to the panel and then we'll come back out several times. So don't worry if you've had your your hand out. Um, uh, Deborah, do you want to pick up on anything you've heard or make any points? And let's just keep it kind of a minute and a half, two minutes yeah. each. Okay. Yeah, experimenting with gender is fine. As, as others have said, you know, I grew up with this in the 1980s. Role models included Annie Lennox and... Uh, and David Bowie, David Bowie wore dresses, Annie Lennox wore a suit. But we knew that Annie, Le Annie Lennox was a woman and David Bowie was a man. And what they were doing was they were expanding the, uh, they were expanding what was allowed within their own sex uh, to encompass, well, why can't, why can't people do that? What we, what we in danger of teaching children is they've got to identify outside their sex in order to be themselves. And with that comes the dangers that we've been talking about. Because we do have a sex, you know, we, we are our bodies and we're the product of evolution and uh, and you know just picking up on the intersex I do want to say something about that intersex conditions do exist but intersex people are male or female just like everybody else and it's uh, it, it's not helpful to try and claim that they're a third sex because they're not people are either male or female there is just two sexes uh, what I was saying about Pronouns, you can use whatever pronouns you like about me, I don't care. Pronouns for you to describe me to make life easy for you. And as Chrissy said, my pronouns are I, me and mine. And that's as far as I would go on that. That's okay, thanks. Let's move down just the table. So Claire, pick up on anything you like. Yeah, I'll, I'll um, come back to the point about um, gender neutral and whether um, what we were suggesting or maybe what maybe felt I was suggesting was that it would be... Um, We'd be creating an entirely gender-neutral kind of social environments for children who could, yes, they had um, a biological sex, but we didn't refer to that, and everything was presented neutrally. I, I don't think that's I don't think that's necessary. I think um, because I think you said that we were um, suggesting across the panel um, that uh, gender is entirely socially constructed, and that's really fascinating. I, I'm, it's interesting that you you picked up on that because I don't necessarily think it is and I think that's one of the really interesting discussions we need to be having and you know when I was saying that actually when we're getting to adolescents and young people I would love to be getting young people together in groups and asking exactly that question is gender socially constructed um, because I think people are uh, you know wibbly what as you know wibbly wobbly when it's not some people do think gender is entirely socially constructed. Some people are saying that gender is actually innate and, you know, you have a very clear innate gender identity from, uh, a ver from very young. And some people seem to argue it's both at the same time or neither. I mean, I, I would say that actually, you know, um, what we know from, from child development is that there do seem to be, you know, very strong indicators that within, within sexes there seem to be tendencies 
to have certain preferences and make certain choices. And there does seem to be some innate factors within that. But of course, you can't separate that from the socialization. Obviously, then there is a huge impact of how we respond to those maybe innate preferences, how we respond to those culturally. We expect boys to behave in certain ways, maybe because boys behave in certain ways, and then we shape them to behave in certain ways. And then if you are a boy who doesn't um, conform to that, you know, so you're gender non-conforming, actually your interests are more towards what would culturally be viewed as the feminine. And it might be culturally viewed as feminine because on the whole, girls tend to prefer those things. Then that will uh, create, um, you can see how that can then create real feelings of distress for children in the way that um, Chrissy was describing about that, that categorization. So I don't think we need to go down this into, I think it would be quite oppressive for children to be entirely um, gender neutral because they, they will make their choices. But what I think we do is go back to those principles I was talking about, which is, yes, there is a material reality to the type of body that you have. And I would agree with what Debbie was saying in response to the, you know, is is, biologically se is biological sex reductive? I think when we bring kind of um, sexual development disorders in to try and argue that biological ex um, sex isn't dimorphic in mammals, I think we get into some, you you know, interesting discussions. Another discussion, it would be great. Yeah, let's get young people together to discuss that. So I love these questions. And that's really one of my central points. The questions that are coming back from the audience are things that we need to be openly discussing. And at the moment, they're not. They're being discussed in separate, quite polarized positions. And, and they're unresolved and they're contentious. And people are presenting them as if they are resolved and they're not. And we need young people to be keeping open minds and discussing and, and coming to an understanding of where they are and us coming to the question of how do we bring about change? I think we bring it about through that discussion and it's a process. And I think it's there's been an attempt to bring that change about without having the discussion. And I think that is what's created some of the, issue, the, the big issues that are existing around this at the moment. Okay, great. Thanks, Chris. Okay, uh, I'm glad someone brought up the figure one in 50 for the intersex people because I actually have the figures with me. Uh, it's a little less than that. It's a little less than 1.8%. Um, and interestingly, that's worldwide, 1.5% um, of that, so the vast majority, is made up of populations in two distinct parts of the world. Firstly, there's the Dominican Republic, and then there's Papua New Guinea. And there is one particular condition which is very, very prevalent in those parts of the world, which is called late onset uh, CAH, uh, which is essentially, this is a condition where children with uh, XY chromosomes are born. They haven't yet um, had the um, endocrinal um, development. So they, they, they have not been masculinized in the womb. So they appear to be girls. And it's in adolescence that they then start to develop male features. So they start to actually get a penis uh, in early adolescence. Interestingly connected to that, uh, Papua New Guinea, there's lots and lots of anthropologists who've gone over there since Margaret Mead. Um, and one thing that does stand out, and I think there might well be a link here, is in a lot of those uh, societies, a lot of them hunter-gatherer societies, um, there is quite a strong um, genderization of children. So in other words, you have um, boys who are uh, segregated from the age of about five or so. They're taken away from the from their mothers and their sisters, and they are purged of all the feminine in, in, uh, influences by be, being bled. They are then um, often um, uh, imbued with masculinizing influences, such as famously um, boys actually being fellated 
uh, well, fellating each other, giving each other blowjobs in order to absorb masculizing influences. So what you end up with is in a society where there is possibly a connect of good reason to, to believe that, because obviously they don't have modern science, they don't know about chromosomes, to believe that, that, that sex is variable, that the year therefore socially reinforce it as harshly as possible. Um, yes, I don't think that you necessarily have to uh, to connect uh, sex and gender to science. Uh, absolutely, we know what um, chromosomes are. In interestingly, how many of us know what our own chromosomes are? I've never had mine tested for a start. Um, for instance, I mean, there's lots of expressions. We talk about sunrise every day. The sun's a beautiful sunset this, uh, this evening, wasn't it? It's not a sunset, it's an earth turn. The sun stays put, it doesn't move at all. That's a not, so that's a non-scientific use of language. We could, in theory, develop a, uh, an idea of sex and gender, which is, which is not absolutely linked to sex, but that's a different thing that, to what we're discussing, I think. Okay, thank you. Katie? I'm adopting that. Gender is a sunset. <laughs> Sex is an earth turn. There you go. We solved it. Um, I'm often asked, actually, Katie, so how many sexes are there? And I usually go something along the lines of approximately about more or less two, <laughs> just to be slightly scientific, to allow for the possibility that depending on whether you're measuring gametes or the 24 different chromosome combinations, of which mostly we see two of, but sometimes it can take four or five chromosome tests to prove you're only one or the other, because there are the rare exceptions where you can have you know, mosaicism, chimerism, and, and you mentioned the Hueva Dothes, which are well worth researching, actually, um, and they're about the two communities. But those two communities that have the largest proportion of people with this syndrome are actually do treat it quite differently from each other, actually. One accepts it quite a lot and one less so but that's a whole anthropological exploration of one particular intersex condition which is one among and if you look at different medical textbooks you'll see anything from 30 to around 80 different conditions listed as intersex and one of my concerns is the uh, thing that Chrissy and Debbie have both said has been almost moving towards a language of re-apologizing trans um, whereas the general move has been to depathologize, and actually the, our history is that we depathologized homosexuality, which we considered a fetish and a deviancy, and then we gradually moved to depathologize um, gender identity or whatever you want to call it. The language keeps changing as well, so let's not get stuck on the language because it's been called many things. If you just go back through all the various DSMs, as I said, I had the fortune to be married to a psychiatrist, so the DSM was in the house. Um, but yeah. If there's the, the, the about approximately more or less two sexes thing, I'd then ask her how many genders, Katie? Well, everyone laughs when you go and quote Facebook's 73 genders or 74. Well, that's a gross underestimate. It's approximately 7 billion. One for everyone, which goes back to our perception of the sunset, shall we call it that? So I'll end on this bit. My... Um, Perception, therefore, of raising kids in a gender-neutral way is raising seven billion kids, not raising a gender-neutral they-dom, as it were. It's not, you know, you can look at your dystopian or utopian visions of the future. Is it like everyone wearing a kind of uh, an androgynous jumpsuit on, on Star Trek or something like that, or everyone looking like all the creatures in the Star Wars bar scene where everybody is a different alien to the next alien sat next to them? Anyway, that's me growing up in the 70s with sci-fi. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's hear some, some alien on the floor, Kate. Mm. Um, yeah, I just wanted to basically say that um, gender isn't 
most of us understand that gender is different from sex. We're not toddlers. We shouldn't be treated like toddlers. We have more capacity to understand than toddlers. And gender, as I see it, is more of a social construct because it's, as you said, how each person perceives and identifies it. And the way that people see these labels as new and not something that has been around very long is completely ridiculous because labels are just a way that we perceive each other and put into words how we can better respect and describe each other in a way that everyone can understand. Okay, brilliant, okay. thank you, that's it. Yeah, let's move forward. Um, so I think I'll just speak on this as I'm sure many people will have. I've just turned 18, so I kind of have now this perspective of you know having grown up and how I was taught about gender and sex. And the reality is I wasn't really taught about gender or sex as an actual conversation or anything like that. I don't feel any real attachment to whatever genitalia I have. I don't really feel any attachment to any gender I have. You can call me whatever you want, I don't care. Um, I think there's this sort of like, what is the aim with the progressive movement that you want to go through when you're teaching kids about gender? Because I think a lot of people want to just um, end it as, you know, there's sex and then there's gender and you can be whatever gender you want, fine. Um, why is there such an attachment? I wanna like ask this question to the panel. Why is there such an attachment to biological sex? It is because of the socialization that we've had in the mm -hmm. past. You know, There is a huge amount of genetic variation within the human species. You can pick any sort of variation you want to and make categories based on that. You can do it on hair color if you want. The reality is that, you know, obviously sex is a little bit different, but just, you know, teaching kids that biological sex is like an inherently important part of themselves, I don't think that's really necessary. And I know this is not a change that's going to just happen overnight, but overwhelmingly, I think we need to stop. I, I don't think biological sex should be relevant in all of that, all that many aspects of society. And I know it will continue to be for a while, but I don't think it should be. And I think this issue needs to be moved just from gender to also to sex and to say that you know neither of these things have to be defining traits um if you want them to be they can but they don't have to be and they probably shouldn't be in the near future okay thank you um it actually made me think of one of the arguments i often have with myself in my head is a diff is the and sometimes i like the idea of you know like nudist beach beaches in germany where like nothing matters and everyone just lets it hang out and there's no, there's the gender or sex or anything like that doesn't really come into it and everyone's really comfortable. Or like I once went to spa in Amsterdam and it was like, you know, terrifyingly liberating how much nobody cared who you were or what you looked like. And then the other half of me thinks back to times, particularly as a uh, growing girl, as a someone who was a teenager on the cusp of becoming a um, woman, and I think of the times in which my biological reality was very important to me, often because I was learning that I was attracted to boys and wanted to get into relationships with them. But also thinking back to, you know, not to be too crass about it, um, spending lunch times in the safe space of, um, you know, often the girls' toilets, talking to other girls and figuring out what it was that we had in common and what it was that was different about us to our male counterparts. And um, that's not to suggest that there wasn't difference within those groups, but I then feel quite attached to that idea that you that biological sex might be important to understand what's happening to you as you grow up. 
Um, and, you know, obviously di different people with different experiences aside, uh, as someone mentioned in the front, not everyone goes through the, not everyone wants to go through the biological sex, recognizing puberty, boy meets girl, girl meets boy, happy ever after. But for lots of us, it, that, that was quite an important defining factor. And so is there, you know, at the risk of opening a can of worms, is there part of the problem with um, a denial of biological reality or a, a poo-pooing of it is that you deny those spaces where kids start to think about who they are, who they want to become and who they want to eventually spend the rest of their lives with, as it were. Um, there was a study in 2019 that you may know about that showed that 42% of people who identified as um, transgender or non-binary met the diagnostic threshold for a diagnosis of autism. Um, that's when the general uh, autism levels in the UK are generally around 1% to 2%, depending on the study you look at. So 42% being that criteria. Um, and that, uh, Dr. Stagg, who led the study, said that that was mostly um, pushed, that number was massively pushed by uh, females, girls uh, on the autism spectrum. Um, and I'd love to hear if anyone has any uh, thoughts on the crossover between autism and gender dysphoria. Um, my contention is, and anyone's welcome to speak to me about it afterwards, but my contention is that autism in girls causes gender dysphoria. And I say that as someone uh, with both autism and gender dysphoria. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, thanks for a really interesting discussion. Um, I suppose I wanted to throw something else into the mix, perhaps. Uh, sex, not biological sex, uh, but, you know, the act of making love or intercourse sexy or whatever sex. you want to call it. Exactly, sexy sex. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I suppose it, it comes from... I, I grew up in a kind of single-parent household, mother, two sisters, and between the ages of sort of five and ten, I spent a lot of time in my sister's dresses. Thankfully, the DSM wasn't as it is now because I may look very different now I don't know who knows and I usually did it kind of in secret and I don't know why I did it or why I enjoyed it this is getting recorded I should probably not say too much um, but you know Freud would have a field day anyway once I got caught and my mum was very accepting and said you know you can wear dresses if you want I, it kind of lost its enjoyment um, so make of that what you will um, but I suppose I think for me, the, the point I'm trying to make is, you know, that period for me was that weird period of childhood where you're kind of getting sort of sexual, you know, feelings or you're being introduced into the sexual world. You don't quite know what's going on. And for me, I think, you know, the kind of dress wearing hopefully had nothing to do with my sisters, but just the, the act of wearing the dresses. Um, you know, I think that that was part of my kind of sexual development, my understanding of what I was attracted to. And so how important is it, I think we said, you know, have conversations about sex. And I, I assume you're referring to biological sex and gender. But how important is it to have broader conversations about having sex? Um, because that's tied into it, I assume. And desire. and Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay, brilliant. Hi, I'm a bit conscious that I'm a bit older than most of the other people who have spoken from the audience and more in line with the age of the panel. Um, I'm a psychologist who works with children and young people. Um, prior to being a psychologist, I was a teacher. Um, I have real concerns that we're not able to give children and young people that space to explore what they need to explore. Um, I'm conscious that adolescence has always been a, a period of 
pushing boundaries and exploring and finding out about yourself. Um, also, that adolescence is a particular time of peer pressure and being needing to belong to an in-group where you might not be able to explore what is really inside you, what, what's really going on for you, and a particular concern about the push for affirming therapy at the moment and the issue about banning conversion therapy, which now will look likely it might be, again, pushing us towards affirming what somebody comes into the therapy room with than allowing them to explore what might be going on for them. And that's my concern. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, um, I'm trying to get my head around this, and uh, I'm not doing a very good job. So far, I actually haven't heard any kind of concrete definition of what gender actually means. To me, we're using the words biological sex. As far as I can see, that's primarily an issue of anatomy. And perhaps there, and anatomy is not just a question of what organs, physical organs you have in your body and you know, differences of genitalia, your, your pelvic size, and, but also there may be different uh, structures in the brain as well, I don't know. Uh, in gender, when one says, if someone says, I feel that I am of another sex or that I am in, I've got the, I'm in the wrong body, what does that, cons that's now gender and ab above and beyond, I don't know, some certain behaviors, uh, certain articles of clothing, uh, decor facial and, and doc cosmetics and de decoration. I mean, if you were in a different, if you were living in the savannah in Africa, you know, where you don't, women don't wear skirts, I mean, what would, what would that mean? What would it mean to be a different gender in a different mm -hmm. society, which doesn't have the norms that we're all used to here? And the one thing that I would say is that, you know, to anybody who's thinking that, you know, sex is a cultural construct, and gender may have some cultural constructs to it, for sure, but in terms of biological sex, there is certainly one aspect of females, and that is that they get pregnant, or can get pregnant, and they can and, they can and do have children, and that, I think, creates a whole dynamic which is no male can possibly understand. I certainly don't, would scare me, and societies and cultures have developed gender and cultural uh, gender uh, identities specifically to deal with that reality of the fact that women have children and societies just can't have women having children all over the place without those children being protected and, and in some way being uh, held by the society. That varies from society to society, obviously. Okay, thanks. Thank you. I find the discussion very tricky. I'm a teacher and I pulled a short straw. I'm at a new school and I had to teach year 11 PHSE and I had to teach um, the whole question of transgender a couple of Fridays ago. And uh, I'm genuinely unclear, so I want to think out loud and the panel and the audience can tell me. So first of all, I actually loved the title because the title was How Do We Talk About Gender? And it got me thinking who? Who should be talking about gender? Should it be us teachers or should it be families and your local community and wider culture, ordinary people in the street? Because I'm not sure that the teacher has a privileged position or any advantage over anybody else, but it's been turned into that situation. So I'm, I'm so really, this is what I'm thinking out loud about. See, X amount of years ago, say 30 or 40 years ago, Schools were these places where we tried to reflect the culture of society. We called it socialization. It seems today, in many instances, our norms and our culture are unclear. 
But we're expecting the schools to nonetheless deliver a line to the kids, like for example on transgender. And it seems that what we're engaged in now is no longer socialization, but what you might call social or moral or cultural engineering. It's like top down, and we're trying to tell those kids, but some of them are going home to their families, especially out of, no, I teach in North London, <coughs> but some are going home to their families. And this is a bit crude to put it like this, especially in what you might call working class communities. And their mums and dads and aunts and uncles would say to them, and this is what one of the boys said to me in my class, an Albanian boy, quite a naughty boy, but I get on with him. During the lesson, this is what he said. He said, sir, if somebody says they're a woman and they're wearing a dress and have a penis, they're a man. And then a couple of really nice girls in the class called them transphobic. And because they, I get on with them, we managed to have a civil debate. But the question I want to leave you with is, I mean, is the problem that that lad's transphobic is the problem that people are intolerant, not letting that lad and his family have the view that the person with a penis who says they're a woman is actually a man? Question mark. Okay, thank you very much. Um, let's bring it back to the panel and then we'll come back out finally. So panel, just a kind of one minute on anything. I know there's a lot going on, but just pick up on one thing for a minute. Um, and let's start this side, Katie, if I start with you. Um, I'd love to dive into this gentleman's question because I think there it's really healthy to have that. But I'm not sure I can do that in one minute, but grab me afterwards if not. Um, very, very quickly then, a couple of things that said, even going back to something you said, Ella, about, you know, safe space for teenage girls in the toilets to, to be able to discuss their developing bodies without boys being there or, or anything else like that. One of the ways I think that we have to find a way forward through this morass, through this intersection of rights and the cake of equality and all these other aspects of diversity and inclusion is, and I think what we've done at the moment is we've created this binary polarized um, war, culture war around this. And, and it's become sex v gender. So you've got the kind of the gender critical side saying it's sex, not gender. You've got many on the, the trans side saying it's gender, not sex effectively. And what's wrong with both? And what's wrong with accepting that one is biological, one is psychological, one is um, culturally expressive. Um, and that in its sense, the cultural expression of it is a reaction to the actual cultural oppression of it. Gender is the tool and the means, you might argue, is the social construct itself to, to even say this, but the gender is one of the means of the oppression through sex, particularly of women. And it's okay to combine those statements like that and to acknowledge that one is the means of attacking or controlling the other. Um, and so and, I, and so I live next door, but two to quite a well-known gender critical feminist who actually supported me through my transition as an individual but we have great arguments about what we think about gender and also about race because she's a black woman. And um, we both argue that gender and race are like the tools and the means of oppressions, whereas sex and color are the, are the, are the actual biological aspects. So the, it's the same kind of argument to some extent. And it, you know, I think some people who are looking at gender identity and using gender identity is they're using it as an alternative modern younger way to exit the oppression it's a, it's you know it's like the matrix there she's saying this is how i'm leaving the matrix and, and one of the ways i'm doing that is by defining gender for myself and it's not based on biology as destiny which is why we've got the second and third wave feminism distinction there as well so my one of my ways of going forward in a constructive way would be to say that let's instead of thinking like it's either or it why not have and 
and and there isn't an equal sign between the two they're not identical either um and when we're looking at language and when we're looking at facilities let's look at the addition of language and facilities rather than the replacement or erasure of language and facilities so in other words don't make all school toilets gender neutral add gender neutral toilets so there still remains girls and women's spaces but there are also inclusive spaces and so if we do that to me that is one of the ways through this morass and i think going back very quickly on the uh, autism neurodiversity angle with gender dysphoria as well yes i think there is a link but i also think one of the links around that is because we've designed a world for, for neurotypicals and anyone who is neurodiverse is already outside of the matrix as well because we've prevented we've presented them this this binary way of doing sex and gender and anyone who is neurodiverse is already seeing it differently and not you know engaging with the matrix in that same way so again i would say around say therapy and all the other supportive measures it's it's neither conversion therapy and i'm quite comfortable with it being banned um, nor is it confirmation therapy as i said in my opening let's get back to some kind of supportive discovery explorative therapy Brilliant. Thank you. Chrissy. Okay, I mean, one of the things that made me nervous about this discussion today is that I was I knew beforehand that we were going to have a very rich, diverse sort of um, uh, number of contributions and points because it is a fascinating area. It's, unfortunately, it rarely gets discussed in that way. Um, so I can only pick up on a few things. Um, to do with the, the question from, from here, um, about the, 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 the teacher or the parent, who do we trust? Um, I would like to link that back to something I said in my initial points, which is um, to do with um, the inner mood idea of authenticity, that uh, if you feel deep inside yourself, this is so important to who I am, and this could relate to so many different things, um, it's impossible for someone else to say, yes, it's true, or no, it isn't. Now, it is absolutely impossible for most of us to distinguish between someone who has got a deep-seated uh, gen gender dysphoria, um, uh, absolutely needs to, um, to express themselves through a transgendered uh, identity, and someone who thinks this might be an easy way to access um, uh, uh, women in some way or another, like the... the, 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 the disproportionate number of male prisoners who are identifying as trans in order to move to female prisons. Do, are they all genuine? Of course not. How do we decide which ones are, which ones aren't? It's very difficult. Um, yes, just I'd just like to pick one other thing, uh, which is um, how we explain it. Yes, I gave a tentative idea, one of the things we might want to take into, uh, into account in how we understand gender dysphoria, but that's less important, I think, than the general acceptance. And we, uh, what is the good news is that the public are genuinely and generally far more uh, accepting than they certainly used to be. A recent, uh, few statistics from a recent uh, social attitude survey here, 84% um, of the British population say they're not at all prejudiced against trans people. 85% accept that it's not in any way a trivial thing. Um, and 72% of women are completely comfortable with trans women using public toilets. That's good news. We don't need to enforce um, uh, social norms in the, to the extent that some people on the, uh, the, the pro-trans side of this debate um, seem, to, seem to believe. 
Brilliant. Thank you. Chris, uh, sorry, Claire. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, I'll try and be quick. There's so much that I would like to have said in response to them, um, in response to so many of the questions. And um, I'm really heartened by the fact that we're just having this debate and the questions that you're asking, the fact that, you know, um, I'll be, I would enjoy so much having more time to have these sorts of discussions. But I'll try and just pick up on a few things. Um, somebody asked whether... Um, does does biological sex still need to be relevant at all if we're moving to this you know kind of it's all about individual expression and whatever your individual expression your own choices are i think that there's a uh, i understand the point behind that and i think there is something around that in that yes we you know it's the uh, the the kind of feminist idea that you know um sex isn't um destiny but there, there is biological sex still will, will always have some relevance, and I think um, the the man towards the front, you know, talking about the fact that women and the girls who are going to grow up to be women are the sex who will have babies. You know, there are some real clear um, uh, roles that go with having certain biologies that will impact how uh, certain um, decisions that you make in your life, they will have influence in your life. And when you're a very small child, you know, I was talking about we don't necessarily need to talk about gender at all, very small children, which sex they are, it really doesn't matter. But I think the older you get, the um, particularly going into adolescence, then the um, impact of, and I'm talking here about girls, I mean, there, there obviously is, uh, uh, conversely, you could talk about boys, but I think it's particularly relevant to girls, and I was a girl, so I have more experience of this, is that your biology does start to have some significance. Now, it shouldn't impact on um, the opportunities you have or the choices that you um, are, are open to you, but you do, girls do need, girls and young women and, and, and women who are having children do need to have particular um, will, issues, thinking of the impact on them, and they will need to think around those. So biological sex um, does remain relevant. And then I think that links to the, the question that the, the um, somebody asked about autism and girls. And I think what I've just said there about adolescent girls and the um, becoming aware of the impact of your biology um, is linked to what we're seeing in the link between autism and um, teenage girls and identifying with um, gender dysphoria and you can start to see that if you you know um, something about autism and you can start to link it to um, Chrissy's categorization kind of areas where people with autism uh, will tend to um, have quite rigid think thinking where they will want to fit things very clearly into categorizations and when things don't work in that way it can be particularly distressing for people who um, have uh, those more rigid thought patterns and also people with um, autism will um, often find in that that uh, identity exploration that's going on for all adolescents that they're not necessarily finding able to find their 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 tribe their group they don't have that sense of belonging that maybe some of the the other peer group and this might provide that sense of belonging it's like i don't know where i am but i can fit into this category and that relieves a lot of these this kind of emotional distress um that i might be experiencing i would also add to that while i'm talking Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, I'll make this. A, yeah, the, well, we're talking about girls. It's not just all, um, girls with autism. There's a, been a, a huge rise, I think 4,000% in adolescent girls um, identifying as trans. So there are particular issues for that group, which I won't go into now, but I think we need to talk about. And that's the point I keep coming back to is the discussion we're having now, so much of it is unresolved. We need to talk about it more with adolescents and young people.
Brilliant, thanks. Uh, briefly, I just want to thank the person from the back for the voice of reason. Yeah, we're not toddlers. Gender isn't sex, and we must talk about both. What I worry about, though, is we move away from gender expression to gender identity, which then does conflate the two. We must talk about sex. As was said, uh, only one sex gets pregnant, and the other the only the other sex experiences male sexuality, which is something we don't talk about enough either, because that is uh, something to be experienced as as a, as a male. And if we deny it, if we deny those things, we deny we. Uh, if we deny sex, we allow the male sex basically a free rein to, to uh, exploit the other sex. And that's what concerns me. And we're in danger of denying the female sex, even the language, to describe the exploitation. And that does worry me. OK, right. Let's go out to the panel. We've got five minutes left. Just bear that in mind for what? Because I want to get enough people in. I think obviously the panel has tried to be as conciliatory as possible, accommodating other people's talks and talking about being open and age appropriate but let's face the reality things are very very different to that because a small minority of people in society mainly trans people but not by any means exclusively trans people have weaponized this whole discussion and a lot of the ideology right is being pushed through politicians who don't know where to draw the line and pushed through, um, if, if you like, teaching unions, other groups in society, who think it's quite reasonable to argue that a three-year-old can be trans, or that it's appropriate for primary school children to be having discussions in which gender identity is discussed as a matter of fact. You know, and all of these terms and terminology are com completely confused. So I think we've got to be realistic. We're starting from a point where actually the whole issue has also got tied up with your right to actually challenge this. I'm obviously a turf. As far as I'm concerned, you can't declare you're a woman if you still have a penis. You can't declare yourself a woman if you've had a sexual reorientation because you're not. You can't, as some people have emphasized, confuse, confuse the two. So I think we need to be realistic. And what I couldn't agree more about with the speaker here, it shouldn't be teachers who are having to adopt this ideological position and socially engineer it in not just secondary schools, where sure you can have an open discussion, but in primary schools as well. OK, thank you very much. My point is on uh, developmentally appropriate uh, shared language, which is who gets to decide what that language is and why. Thank you. Very nice. Um, okay, with the microphone here, yes. Um, Claire, right? Um, you talked about that there was a rise in adolescent girls identifying as boys, and there was like a 400% rise. And the way you said it... 4,000. 4,000% rise. And the way you said it, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, made it seem as though you didn't quite believe that all of them truly identified as trans and I, 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 is that, is that correct? Did you? Well, finish oh, sorry, sorry, yes, of course. Um, <laughs> and truly I'm not really on either side of the, bit, the the debate, but I was curious as to what you thought about maybe if they perhaps didn't truly identify as a man, could it have something to do with the fact that female sexuality is portrayed as being vulnerable and male sexuality portrayed as being powerful in the media 
and that for women growing up, their sexuality is so confusing because of that. And they might want to identify as a man to get out of that because it's so painful growing up as a girl. I thought maybe you had a comment on that. Thank you very much. Brilliant, thanks. Yeah, very quickly from here. Um, just a quick comment about um, um, heterosexuality and homosexuality as political ideology. I wonder after so many decades and years of normalizing um, heterosexuality and, and, and cisgender normativity, why we become so ferocious about pushing against a different ideology saying that's political ideology mm. and the opposite is just natural science the way it's supposed to be. I think that's a question we should ask why a certain way of thinking is political ideology like pushing into people's mouth and reverse engineering. Another side of teaching is just natural, supposed to be social production. Okay, brilliant. Speakers, your challenge to leave the audience with something in 30 seconds. Let's do it um, in the order in which we started with. So Deborah. Uh, I just want to thank the audience for asking such great questions and for adding to a rich debate. I don't think we do this often enough. I think we have got differences of opinion in this room, and if we talk to each other about them, we may understand where everybody's coming from. So thank you very much, everybody. Brilliant. Thank you. I, yes, let's clap. Let's clap. Okay. I was going to say do it all at once, but they're too good, so let's clap each. Okay, Katie. Um, okay, very briefly. Um, understand history, understand science, understand psychology, understand the fucking lot of them, um, and explore yourself as a human being. Let's, where we're at now is not where we will be. Where we've come from has changed too. Like the gentleman there just said, like we've moved on in terms of the way we treated homosexuality. Let's potentially also keep moving on in terms of the way we treat gender identity, transsexualism, transgender, whatever language you want to call it, come from a different generation, different language. Let's move towards a point where we're talking about human rights and personhood in decades from now, hopefully maybe years rather than decades. Uh, and let's start moving towards a better future for everyone in that sense. Thank you very much. Claire. Okay, well, I'm going to come back to the question that was put directly to me. I would agree with everything that you posed there. It's kind of hypothetical about what's going on. I think we need to talk about it much, much more because I think there's a lot of other hypotheses. But what I would say is there's definitely something going on with, with um, when you've got that number of girls, um, you know, 4,000% increase. And yes, we need to talk about that and work out what is going on. Then I would also just address maybe my last comment to the teacher and the turf. And I would agree with you both um, that... They're the approach that schools are being put in a very, very difficult position here. Um, part of what we do about addressing that and the reality of where we are is having discussions like this and insisting we have discussions like this and opening it up and going back to those principles that I went to, that really? you mentioned at the beginning. Thank you very much, And Chrissy. Okay, my final point might sound uh, slightly counterintuitive, but I actually think that primarily the role, the phenomenally major role that trans um, issues have, have taken in the culture wars, the so-called culture wars, has very little to do with sex or gender. Uh, it's got something to do with the ways in which the transgender identity seems to exemplify so many things of identity in general. And the, the, so my final parting shot is identity politics, I think largely tends to ignore both the individual and the whole of society. So to give one example, it is true that uh, trans people are more likely to be homeless than the general population. The solution has to do with how we get rid of homelessness. It doesn't matter if you're homeless, what the, uh, the, the characteristics are. It matters the fact that we need to solve that problem. 
Thank you very much. Thanks again for listening to the Battlefest podcast. You can support us by subscribing, sharing and leaving us a review. Check back next week for more recordings from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021.